Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor for Providence. And today we are joined by Olivia Enos, who is the senior policy analyst for Asian Studies Center at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And first off, thank you so much, Olivia, for uh, joining us remotely for this podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. As many of our followers probably know, the uh, situation in Hong Kong has um, changed suddenly in the past week. Uh, Just so that people know, we are recording today on Thursday, May 28th, in case things are changing over the weekend. But um, so today, May 28th, the Chinese Communist Party approved a decision to establish and enhance the legal framework and enforcement mechanism for national security in Hong Kong. So, Olivia, what does this mean and how did we get here? Well, this is a really significant development and will shape the foreseeable future for the Hong Kong people. The National People's Congress, as you referenced, was considering a resolution on a new national security law that would make it so that um, individuals inside Hong Kong cannot discuss um, secession, they cannot engage in so-called terrorism or so-called foreign interference, which could be something as simple as like coming to Heritage and speaking in a program or um, talking even with somebody from Providence. Um, And they've also made it so that um, people cannot engage in seditious acts. And what we know from the Chinese Communist Party is that all of that will mean that what we bore witness to last year, the 2019 pro-democracy protests would probably be characterized as, you know, one of those four things. And so the fact that this is being passed means that the governing you know, structure for Hong Kong of one country, two systems is essentially coming to an end. Um, What that looks like over the long term is a big question um, because, you know, it is, of course, in China's interest to maintain the economic vitality of Hong Kong as an asset to China. But as one of my colleagues really aptly put it, um, China seems no longer okay with Hong Kong just being a global economic center. It needs to be a specifically Chinese economic center. And so they are really undertaking a lot of transformations, possibly with a pretty significant risk economically, um, because I think there's going to be huge diplomatic changes, certainly to the U.S. relationship, both to China and Hong Kong, but likely to how the entire world and the business community interfaces with Hong Kong. Hmm. So talking about the the Chinese perspective on this, where you said that the your colleagues suggested that this is China trying to make Hong Kong into a Chinese financial center and not a global center. So is China seeing this as a you know, even if they lose Hong Kong as a global center, it's a net positive for them economically? I think that they see it as they're putting their stamp on the economic activity that happens there. And I think that the two systems will really be no more. um, But the extent to which the sort of capitalist policies that are allowed to flourish there and a lot of the democratic freedoms that have been enjoyed um, since the handover in 1997, I think those will be substantially diminished. And so this is incredibly discouraging because, you know, uh, this means that the individuals who are going to bear the brunt of the Chinese Communist Party's decision to consider this resolution um, will be the Hong Kong people. They will bear the brunt of all of this. And as Secretary Pompeo put yesterday, any harm that should befall the people of Hong Kong is a direct consequence of the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. And um, 
this is really concerning, very, very concerning. The U.S. needs to make sure that it has the, the Hong Kong people's backs, that we continue to stand on the side of freedom, that we continue to safeguard what we can of Hong Kong's um, both freedom and prosperity, and that we very clearly communicate to the Hong Kong people that we still have their back. And you recently wrote that this is Hong Kong's worst case scenario. Why did you say that? This is the worst case scenario because when the one country, two systems framework um, was established in 1997, there was an agreement that this was going to go on for at least 50 years. And so now that's going to be coming to a close. Um, You know, it looks like much, much sooner than anticipated. Um, That means that a lot of the freedoms that Hong Kong people enjoy won't be there anymore. And, you know, the worst case scenario is, is not only my words, it's also the words of Martin Lee, who you know, is basically the founder of Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. He was involved in writing Hong Kong's basic law, which is what established that one country, two systems framework. And we had him at Heritage last week for a public program, along with Dennis Kwok, a current legislative council member in Hong Kong. And both of them were saying that this is incredibly concerning. They also put nuance into what's going on right now. So what went through with the National People's Congress is not the law actually going into effect, but it is the National People's Congress committing to that resolution um, leading to the eventual law, passage of a law. And a lot of people are anticipating that that won't come through until August. So it kind of remains to be seen. Maybe we have a little bit of time to work with, but it really does look like, um, you know, the die is kind of cast for Hong Kong. And I think, of course, we saw yesterday Um, Secretary Pompeo saying that Hong Kong was no longer sufficiently autonomous from uh, the People's Republic of China. And so that, too, is going to have really significant implications. And I think we'll start to understand that a little bit better um, when the president makes his official statement on what decertification means for Hong Kong. What do you think this means for U.S.-China relations? I know you said that you know, President Trump is going to kind of clarify some more on this, but what are your, you know, speculations for now? Yeah. So what Secretary Pompeo did yesterday was in response to a legal requirement that's laid out both in the Hong Kong Policy Act, as well as the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that was passed by Congress um, actually last fall. Um, And that specifically requires Secretary Pompeo to report to Congress whether or not Hong Kong is um, enjoys sufficient autonomy. And in the bill, it lays out a couple of different areas that this would impact if it was deemed that Hong Kong um, was not sufficiently different um, or didn't merit different treatment than any other part of China. Um, that can relate to trade issues, other econ issues, as well as um, collaboration with local law enforcement, training that's done between the U.S. Um, and Hong Kong. And I think that that's where there's quite a lot of room for the U.S. government to determine what the next steps will be. And for decertification to fully take place, it will require um, an executive order from the president. And Secretary Pompeo indicated yesterday that President Trump will be coming out with a statement, whether or not that actually means an executive order or something else. I think that kind of remains to be seen. But I think also Congress has a role in this since Congress kind of laid out the framework for this potential decertification process. And so I think that, you know, Congress is always 
long been a voice in favor of freedom um, for Hong Kong and, and for all parts of Asia. And so I think we'll really be looking for Congress also to be outspoken as well as the executive branch. But there can be no question. There will be implications for U.S.-China relations, potentially even relating to the trade deal. We don't know. Um, there will be implications for U.S.-Hong Kong relations. Um, but I think that there is no actor that will bear the brunt more than the Hong Kong people. Um, and so I think that then it becomes the responsibility of the U.S. to consider what we can do to extend help to the Hong Kong people in their time of need and to reassure them that we do have their back. So could the United States have or any other democratic country have done anything to prevent this from happening? Or is this just Xi Jinping doing, is it all his fault or not just all of his fault, but could any other country have done anything to help Hong Kong more on this? Mm. Well, I mean, I think that the U.S. policy system was pretty responsive after the 2019 protests. I mean, perhaps it took a little bit longer than it should have um, for there to have been both legislative action and also consistent statements coming out of the White House. Um, but I think that everyone, whether it was, you know, lawmakers in the U.S. or even the most cynical people in Hong Kong who expected the worst already, I don't think anyone expected the National People's Congress to be introducing such broad sweeping reforms that would so inhibit the freedoms and liberties of the Hong Kong people. Um, so I think it really did take everyone by surprise. And I think it, um, the only thing that I could think of that might have been a little more advantageous. And I think there's still, you know, opportunities to build this is uh, to have had better alliance management where you did have support for Hong Kong being expressed from all corners of Asia. And I think you you see that in a very democratic fashion at the people level, um, like, you know, at the ordinary person's level expressing support for the Hong Kong people. But I think that it's not um, I, I think there need to be stronger statements and there needs to be an international coalition building. I think I actually saw that the UN Security Council is is calling for um, a special meeting on Hong Kong. And so hopefully that will help to build some international consensus. But there will be implications, I think, for U.S.-China relations. Um, I think that there are individuals who may be able to be held accountable from a sanction standpoint, um, targeting individuals or entities who are found to be undermining freedom in Hong Kong. And of course, we talked about this before when there was... Um, you know, during the protests, speculation about the possibility of an armed intervention on Beijing's part, any sort of armed intervention would need to be unequivocally condemned. And there would be huge, huge implications for that um, beyond even just targeted sanctions. Um, so I think we need to be really on our toes and, and keeping close watch for how Beijing is acting, because it, it's, it's important to remember all of this is happening while the rest of the world is looking the other direction and focused inward as they fight their own battles with COVID-19. This is completely understandable. But while this has been going on, we've seen what's taken place in Hong Kong. We've seen what's happening um, on the China-India border um, with the disputes that are taking place there. We see China taking advantage of kind of the anonymity that's created by a world distracted by the global pandemic that, of course, they grossly mishandled right from the outset. So there's a broader need for accountability. Um, I think there's a need for an international investigation into the COVID-19 situation. And maybe that would dovetail very nicely with efforts to hold them accountable for their transgressions against Hong Kong. 
So last year we saw millions of Hong Kongers protest against the extradition bill that would have eroded their democracy. And at that time it seemed like the CCP wouldn't send in tanks and wouldn't um, enforce its rule too much at that time, that they were kind of allowing the protests to happen. And so is there anything Hong Kongers can do now to preserve their democracy or what do you think will happen? I think Hong Kongers will take to the streets if they can. Again, um, I think we will definitely see protests reemerging. Um, and I think that there's going to be people who are serving in, um, you know, the Hong Kong legislature who are going to continue to be outspoken. And I think that that's, you know, totally understandable. Uh, this is a much more severe situation than the extradition bill. The extradition bill was like another step in Beijing's attempts to erode Hong Kong's one country, two systems uh, framework. What is happening today with this new national security law is an attempt to eliminate the framework and and throw the baby out with the bathwater. It will completely eliminate one country, two systems in practice. Um, And so I think that um, there should be an even stronger response from the Hong Kong people because I think they're literally watching freedoms and liberties that they have enjoyed over the past several years dissipate. Um, I can't imagine actually what it would be like to be in their situation. Um, I don't think it's all going to happen overnight though. I don't want to overstate what's going to happen. I think it's of course in Beijing's interest to maintain Hong Kong's prosperity, but I think that they forget that democracy, that freedom, um, that makes Hong Kong one of the freest economies in the world. It's consistently ranked number one in Heritage's Index of Economic Freedom until this past year when it was moved down to number two. But that freedom is critical to Hong Kong's success, to Hong Kong's wealth and and to its well-being. Um, And so I don't know. I don't know how Beijing is going to square that circle. What do you think this means for Taiwan or what lessons should Taiwan take from all of this? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's important to distinguish Taiwan's framework and system from Hong Kong's. It is different. Um, You know, the way that it was established was different. Um, They have universal suffrage in Taiwan where they can actually elect their president, you know, current president Tsai Ing-wen, as well as have local elections, whereas in Hong Kong, they don't enjoy those types of liberties. Um, And the framework is different. Um, it's it's quite different. But I think that Taiwan and the Taiwanese people would be right to be concerned. I think Tsai Ing-wen is incredibly brave. Um, she has already made public statements about extending safe haven to Hong Kongers who would like to come to Taiwan. This is huge um, for Taiwan to say that um, and to go that far. And Beijing is already threatening, you know, we, we, what we're doing in Hong Kong, maybe we will come for Taiwan next. I don't know whether that will happen, but I think that that's why it's even more important for U.S. policy 
to be grounded in values. The Trump administration's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy is predicated on the promotion of values, that free and open aspect of the policy. And included in that is respect for human rights, respect for freedom, free markets, um, as well as uh, protection of religious liberty, among other um, important first freedoms. Um, you know, and so I, I think that's what we've got to be, you know, thinking about right now. Do you think this episode says anything about American power and influence and its ability or willingness to preserve democracy for those who are fighting for it? I mean, I think that U.S. policy in Asia has has long been supportive of democracy. I mean, you know, we look at even our allies and the role that we played in South Korea or in Japan, and you just appreciate that the U.S. has historically supported um, those countries and that we need those countries as allies in freedom. Um, so I think that the U.S. needs to defend both Hong Kong and you know any threats that might be posed to Hong Kong, or excuse me, to Taiwan as well. Um, and so I think that has to be a critical part of U.S. policy. And, and frankly speaking, I think um, this administration especially uh, has been very supportive of Taiwan in particular. And I think um, even if it took a little bit longer than it should have, um, has been pretty good on Hong Kong. Um, so hopefully there will be follow on steps that are very clear and unequivocal about the consequences to Beijing for continuing to move forward with this uh, national security law. But I think it kind of remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, several commentators have said that China's flawed response uh, would harm it domestically. It's clearly harmed it internationally, I think. But so the extra argument that it would harm them domestically and that they were facing a Chernobyl moment or something that would cause them to fall the same way that the Chernobyl moment caused the Soviet Union to fall, as some say. So are we seeing any of that? Or would a better analogy might be the Prague Spring in 1968 when the Soviet tanks snuffed out democracy in Czechoslovakia for a couple decades? Yeah, I mean, I think that China is certainly taking advantage of COVID-19, sort of getting at the first part of your your question um, you know, to really undermine liberties and to really harm um, Hong Kong. It's kind of trying to take final blows while the rest of the world is distracted. I think this is really dangerous, um, not only and, you know, arguably most importantly to the people of Hong Kong, but to the balance of power in Asia. And I think that kind of gets at, you know, your more historical aspects of of the question um, is how is China reshaping the rest of the world in its own image? I think it's tried to use COVID-19 and also pre-COVID-19 through its Belt and Road Initiative investments to export its forms of authoritarianism. And if it can't export them and have other countries accept them willingly, it will go to its special administrative regions like um, Hong Kong and it will forcibly impose its way. This is hugely problematic because, you know, the values that are widely accepted as, as global and as shared are being undermined by Beijing and its leadership and its authority. And if the world is not careful and doesn't pull together, you know, really a coalition of the willing, 
both to hold them directly accountable for their mishandling of COVID-19. And by that, I mean silencing of whistleblowers, disappearing of um, citizen journalists. It's sidelining of Taiwan. It's lying to the World Health Organization about the transmissibility of COVID-19. It's failure to report accurate numbers about COVID-19, not even to mention what's going on in Hong Kong, um, you know, or the one to three million Uyghurs that it currently holds in detention facilities um, inside its own country. That can't go untested. And I think that the U.S. presents a really you know, excellent model um, that stands in stark contrast to China. We are values loving. We do want to have connections um, with other countries across the globe. And when we make investments, we make them not just for our own good, but for the good of the countries that we're investing in. I think we need to do a better job of highlighting the superiority of a U.S. model, not only to the U.S., but also to the rest of the world. So as you wrote earlier that this could be the worst case scenario for Hong Kong, what should the United States do if this is actually the worst case? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that there are several policy things that the U.S. should be considering. Obviously, Secretary Pompeo already took the first move um, by, you know, issuing sort of this statement that Hong Kong is not sufficiently autonomous from China. And like I said, we'll see where things go um, with that and should get more clarity from President Trump himself. But I think that there's also other steps that can be considered. One, um, if there are individuals found undermining freedom and rule of law in Hong Kong, they should be sanctioned. Two, if we have a sort of armed um, conflict situation, the U.S. should be considering granting priority to refugee status to Hong Kongers, those uh, freedom-loving people, um, industrious people who share a lot of U.S. values would make excellent refugees to be resettled here um, in the U.S. And I think that there's a strong need um, finally to just build a coalition of the willing to hold China accountable for not only mishandling COVID-19, but also for addressing some of the concerns um, related to Hong Kong. So hopefully we can build up a strong rapport with other countries in order to press Hong Kong uh, for Hong Kong's freedom and to demonstrate to the people of Hong Kong that we have their backs. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us again. I, I, I think you've done this, what, three or four times now uh, <laughs> coming on to the broadcast. So thank you for joining us. And um, yeah, stay safe. Thank you. You too. <laughs> All right.